there, chatters. I'm Nat. And I'm Kat. And welcome to the Crime Chat. I am your forensic femfatale, and Natalie is your true crime addict connoisseur. We're just two normal girls who obsess about dark crimes, evil minds, and occasionally the unknown. And here's your disclaimer, chatters. The following crime chat contains adult content and descriptions of mm, uh, eerily violent, creepy-ass scenarios today, <laughs> so your listener discussion is advised. You have been warned, and before we get into today's crime chat, Kat, what have you done? We've got a baby. Yay! <laughs> Congratulations! Rose, our granddaughter, was born <laughs> on August 15th, so yes, Nana Cat and Papa Chris yes. will be heading out to go meet our grandbaby shortly, soon. So, so how, wait, so you're driving there or are you flying there? Oh gosh, we're flying. Okay. <laughs> it's like a five hour flight. <laughs> It'd be like a 24 hour plus drive. <laughs> so yeah, we are totally flying. Get those miles in. Well, congratulations. Oh my God. Thanks. And the pictures are so cute. I love the pictures. Oh my Lord. I know. She's adorable. She's talked to me on the phone already and she's telling me all about this horrible world. She wants to go back into the womb. <laughs> <laughs> yep so she is just absolutely perfect and cannot wait to get my nana cat hands around her so, cute. so congratulations to our son and daughter-in-law and family yes. on the birth of our granddaughter yes congratulations oh my god Yay. just keep on sending those pictures post them on the uh, on the page for all the chatters to see i will steal as many pictures as i can okay good <laughs> So it was a very, you would thought I would have been at the hospital that night because it was about 11.30 here. Yeah. Well, 11.30 p.m. here would have been 8.30 there. And after she had been in the hospital for two days, finally inducement kicked in and my son texted me and said, baby's coming. I'm like, okay, I got to stay up. I was getting ready to go to bed too. I was like, got to stay up. (laughs) One hour goes by, two hours go by, three hours go by and nothing. I was like, ah. So finally, he messaged me about 2.30 in the morning and said, eight pounds, three ounces, perfect baby girl. And everybody's good. Everybody's healthy. So I waited a few minutes and I called because I didn't know like if it was instantaneous, like I wanted to give him a little bit. So I called. I mean, I probably didn't get to bed until, or well, I probably didn't fall asleep until after four. Oh my God. And then I I was up at seven. So. Well, yeah, because it's so exciting. I mean, it's so exciting. Oh, little baby. Little coochie cute. Mm. They call her Piggy. Why? Because she makes, she squeaks like a piglet. (laughs) (laughs) Little baby. So that was amazing. As far as everything else, I mean, that's like the biggest news. But I was going to tell you a couple things that I watched. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's a movie on Apple Plus. It's called The Greatest Beer Run Ever. Right. And it has Zac Efron in it. And it's based on a true story from Vietnam. And basically, there's a guy whose buddies were be- all being drafted for Vietnam. And he's like, I just want to go give him a beer and say thank you for everything that you're doing. Because, you know, like here, there was a lot of... Yeah. I don't want to say fake news, but it was like they were only showing good news stories. So everything like why are people protesting? Right. Like we're not really too sure what was going on. So, anyways, they they had to, they did a really good job like describing the situation. But it's actually based on a true story. This guy smuggled himself into Vietnam, went and visited his friends that were out there, 
and gave him a beer. Sat down, had a beer with him. Now, he missed his boat leaving Vietnam, so he had to work, like, with the embassy and everything like that. He did lose some friends. And based on, it's amazing. He's based on a true story. So if you ever get a chance to watch it, guys, it's a great, great movie. And Zac Efron is like perfect for okay. it. So I'll check it out. Yeah. I'll definitely check yeah. it out. And then the other thing that we've been watching is a TV series called Body Cam. And it's based on body cameras that law enforcement wear in the crazy ass situations that were caught on camera. I mean, we're talking about getting shot at. The last episode we just watched, and this is on, I think, HBO Max. The last episode we just watched, it was a domestic that the police were getting called out to. The guy who called was, like, just being belligerent. Uh And they were trying to calm him down. And they're like, look, if you don't calm down, we're going to have to arrest you for disturbing the peace. Like, you need to calm down. So they kind of settled the situation, left. A couple hours later, got called back again. Right. The boyfriend went to work. The guy who called barricaded himself in his apartment. And as soon as the cops get there, start shooting at him. And it's like all of this stuff, like three out of the four officers were all shot. One of them ended up dying. Like, and they catch all this stuff on camera. It's just crazy. So it, it gives you, I think, a different type of appreciation for law enforcement, for those who go and serve warrants and, yeah. and everything. And it's just like, wow. Good. And if you can, you know, and, and they're they're humans, right? They have emotion. They have feeling. Uh-huh. There's And it's it's very intense. Like, everything that they show is just, like, super intense and emotional and just like authentic i don't think there's a whole lot of hollywoodism in Uh it because it is what it is they show everything and what they're doing is just really explaining kind of what's going on so that's a good i recommend that one that's that's a it's a really good television series it's like what is it life life pd that they used to show oh i was gonna say bad boys (laughs) or well yeah (laughs) or cops. cops Yeah, the old show is kind of like, but it's all based on body cam and like some hidden camera footages and that kind of thing. So it's it's pretty neat. It's it like I said, gives you kind of a a new perspective on law enforcement and everything that they really they put their their lives on the line. They essentially do. So yes. So thanks to our law enforcement out there. Yes, thank you. Keep going. So what about you? I'm sorry, I'm not in my little studio today, so I may sound a little <laughs> echoey, and I apologize. I did everything. I just like I'm like sweating for no reason whatsoever. Like it's so hot. And how is it hot in South Carolina like this? It's actually the hottest week. It's going to be here in a very very long time. It's the hottest week that we're going to have this summer. All the heat indexes are going to be triple digits. Like oh my god. I think today's high was 97. I don't know what the heat index was. Yeah. I, I took a shower this morning and I stopped blow drying my hair because I'm like, you know, why, why blow dry your hair? Whatever. Why, why bother? bother? <laughs> I didn't blow dry mine today. <laughs> Unless I'm styling yeah. it. Uh, wash and go. I'm good with that. Yeah, yeah. I left the house, got in my car, went to work. When I got to work, I was my hair was still wet and it wasn't because it was from the shower. It was sweat. Mm-hmm. That's how yeah. hot it is. Yeah. Oh, my God. Other than that... I'm looking for a new place to live. I put my my little my little humble abode on to be listed to go. Yeah, so that's exciting news. It is exciting. New chapters, you know, new phases in life. Yeah, just done with the bullshit. Like I'm done (laughs) with the HOA homeowners association bullshit. And I'm telling you, the other day we had a snowbird 
person a snowbird if you guys don't know what a snowbird is is people that come from up north down to florida we we just have like this population of people that obviously own homes in both areas (laughs) i'm the problem it's me that was me (laughs) so they're coming down and they're complaining about like where did that shrub go and why is the roof in pieces and it's like they just don't remember that like you know even though it was 10 months ago like florida is still in a state of disaster so yeah they just yeah. they're like what do you mean what hurricane what what hurricane yeah. i'm like oh my god <gasps> go back home just go home <laughs> did you see that for the first time in i don't know 100 years there's a hurricane that hit san diego so our son daughter-in-law and granddaughter they evacuated and went to our daughter-in-law's parents house mm-hmm. which they live kind of, they live couple hours inland up in the mountains but everybody's fine i was talking to him the other day and i think it was yesterday actually i was talking mm. to him and my daughter-in-law's mother's phone alerts earthquake earthquake and i'm like oh <laughs> did you see that did you see the video of the earthquake happening no i only heard it like i heard it the alert as it was like going off i guess it was a 5.5 magnitude but it was an hour or so away from them so crazy it's crazy how mother nature works because like the whole street there's a video of the earthquake where the whole street was flooded Mm -hmm. so i mean and the car and it was a pickup truck and the wheel wells the water was like you couldn't see the tires yeah and then an earthquake hit and it was like riptide in the middle of the street out of the blue i'll have to look for that yeah no i didn't i I mean i knew that had happened i didn't think to go back and look and see what it was you know what it was or anything like that yeah i I just when i hear hurricane now i just follow it because i just it's just getting so extreme the storms that yeah it's crazy yeah even in south carolina south carolina south kakaleki which is where our story takes place today not far just down the road oh oh Mm -hmm. it's like a neighbor ish less than an hour's drive i mean it so it takes place in Columbia, which is the capital. Okay. Yeah, that's right down the road. All right. Well, okay. So I collected some information about South Carolina. Yay! And it's, so it's, I didn't go too deep because there's, a, I mean, South Carolina is historic. We all know that. Yeah. But it, it could have been like a three page long intro or I just <laughs> cut it down to like a half a page. Okay. I just yeah. took the, the fun parts out. Okay. So <laughs> South Carolina is a Southern Eastern state in the United States. Mm-hmm. It is categorized by a mix of historical significance, diverse landscapes, and cultural influences. South Carolina was officially founded and established by a British colony in 1663. That's fucking old. Yeah. That's it a long-ass time ago. Yeah. It was one of the original 13 colonies that eventually forms the United States. Therefore, as of 2023, South Carolina would be 360 years old. She owed. She owed. But she still looks good. She still looks good. <laughs> she shines. <laughs> like the moonshine. <laughs> so, now, oh, is moonshine – wait, do you guys have moonshine? Or is that a Kentucky thing? Well, no, there's moonshiners here. There are. Okay. Yeah. It's not legal there though, right? No. It's not legal anywhere. No, it's not. I don't believe it's so. Not. Yeah. Okay. Correct I didn't me know. if I'm wrong. <laughs> so I – one of one of my friends owns a, a brewery out in St. Pete, mm-hmm. and they brew whiskey, mm-hmm. but they're not allowed to brew it any place other than, I want to say, Kentucky or Tennessee. I don't know. What, there, there's only one state that can brew whiskey. I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah, you have to brew it there, and you have to buy it and ship it. Like, you can't, you know, there could be a distiller. Yeah. But I guess... 
I don't know how the system works, but I think it's old money. So they sure. kind of have just a certain level. Like, you know, you yeah. know everything's got to come through here. But yeah. anyway, so we're, 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 we're sidetracked with whiskey. <laughs> I know. Okay. So the name South Carolina originated from the Latin words calrus mm-hmm. or Carolina, mm-hmm. which means Charles in English. Mm-hmm. The name was chosen to honor King Charles I of England. Charleston. That's how they got Charlestown. Oh, maybe. Yeah. No, it is. Charleston. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Carolus is the Latin form of the name Charles, I guess the more masculine form, and Uh then Carolina Uh is the more feminine form. So, South Carolina is a girl. Yes. She is. Of course she is. (laughs) (laughs) The name was applied to the region as a way of showing loyalty to the king who granted the original land charter for the Carolina colony in 1629. In 1663, King Charles II of England granted a charter to eight of his loyal supporters, which established the providence of Carolina. Mm-hmm. Over time, the Carolina colony was divided into two separate entities, mm-hmm. North Carolina and South Carolina. And in 1712, the split became official, creating the separate colonies that would eventually become the states of North Carolina and South Carolina. South Kakalaki and North Kakalaki <laughs> is what we say. Which one do you prefer, north or south? I know you live in north. South. Oh, no, you live in south. <laughs> south, yeah. Yeah, but like what's the, what's the main difference between north and south? Is there a cultural difference or it's basically the same? It's basically the same. Okay. I mean, obviously, North Carolina, as you you get a little bit closer to like the D.C. and kind of capital area, but Mm -hmm. like culturally, I mean, it's it's pretty much the same. Is it? Okay. Yeah. A lot of small towns, some of the bigger cities, not like cities that you would think of cities, but cities that we call cities. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I say that because like I know where I came from. The five boroughs were very, very different culturally. Like, okay. very, yeah. like the Boogie Down Bronx is mm-hmm. a completely different feeling, vibe, culture compared to Queens. Okay. Where Queens, you'd have more of like Greek Orthodox or you'd have okay. more yeah. of that type of culture. It's just, it's weird how it, they kind of like separate, like they're all, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. No, I think, I think it's a just, it, but in my opinion, you know, I think it's just a, it's a mix of everything. Mm. Because you have mountains, you have beach, you have rural, suburban. Yeah. So in 18th century, South Carolina's economy flourished due to the cultivation of rice and indigo. What's indigo besides a color? Alexa, (laughs) what's indigo? On conservapedia.com, indigo refers to the color in the electromagnetic spectrum lying between blue and violet. (laughs) I think it's a flower. Okay. It's a flowering plant that has been used as a dye. Okay. So... There you go. South Carolina's economy flourished due to indigo and rice. You would think I would know if that was the state flower, but I don't know. I think I think the mag no, it's a magnolia tree. I don't know what the state flower is. Hmm. I don't know either. I, don't like that. I I I looked up other things that represent the state, but not the flower. Alexa, what's the state flower of South Carolina? South Carolina's state flower is the yellow jessamine. Ooh, yellow jessamine. What's the state flower of Florida? I'm thinking like maybe a bug. <laughs> Alexa, what's the state flower of Florida? Florida's state flower is the orange blossom. Orange blossom. Oh, God. No. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, okay. So these cash crops were labor intensive and led to the importation of enslaved Africans to work on the plantations. Oh, my God. When I went to visit South Carolina, we did like a tour of the plantations. Mm -hmm. Those homes are very, very old. 
Yeah. And enormous. I I yeah. I can't even think. I there I went to Key West for a vacation and I went to the Hemingway house mm-hmm. and like these homes are just so massive, but there was no AC. Yeah. So it probably stank. Yeah. They had all windows open and it was just a very flowy. Yeah. But house. women still had to wear like corsets and it was probably yeah. a little stinky. So anyway. All right. Probably. Okay. So <laughs> South Carolina also played a pivotal role in the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. The Battle of Sullivan's Island in 1776. Are you familiar with this? Ish. Yes. Okay. So this is where the British forces were defeated by American forces. Can I phone a friend? No, yes. <laughs> I would I would call Chris because he knows like all the historical things. Like he's he loves all the like early war historical all right. that jazz. Yeah. It's really cool. It's it's pretty impressive, like when you think about what I don't know. Well, anyway, okay. Okay, so South Carolina's ge- geography, I got it, is diverse with coastal regions, marshlands, mountains, and forests. Mm-hmm. The state has a long coastline along the Atlantic Ocean, which features sandy beaches, barrier islands, and historic port cities. Mm-hmm. The low country in yes. the southern part of the state includes marshy areas and rich wildlife. I'm assuming you guys got gators too out there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Midlands are mm-hmm. categorized by rolling hills, farmlands, while the upstate region features the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, which yeah. I've heard is absolutely stunning. It's, yeah, they're beautiful. I live in the Midlands. The Midlands? So you're yeah. surrounded by rolling hills and farmland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, do you have do you have any alligators? Yes, you do. Okay, they're all like there's golf courses and we've got lakes and stuff and yeah, there there's gators okay. here. Yep. Uh, South Carolina has a mix of cultures influenced by the colonial history, including Native mm-hmm. American, European, and African, and also the Geechee mm-hmm. cultures. Am I saying that correctly? Yep. Okay, so the Geechee culture, particularly found in the coastal areas, has preserved district elements of. African heritage, including unique language, music, and cuisine. Mm-hmm. Is that have anything to do with like um um the the gulas? Yes, uh, it's very similar. Yes, okay to the gulas in like the savanna area. Do you know any like? Is that like where like uh, what's that dish? That famous soup, Jum- gumbo? Oh, gu- um, jambalaya. Jambalaya. Have you ever have you ever had or gumbo? That? Is it? I've, I've, it's gumbo. Okay. Probably. Yeah. Okay. If if that's what you're thinking. I don't know. That's what I'm thinking. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, that, there's there's gumbo and and jambalaya. Jambalaya is more of like Louisiana, so we've got more of the the gumbo. Is that more Creole, like French Creole type of creation? Jambalaya is. Okay, and what's gumbo? It's very similar. It's got like rice, sausage, shrimp in like a stew. Okay. Yeah. The week, th- there's a couple different names for it. Uh, Buford stew is another name mm-hmm. for it that's kind of common. And that's from Buford, South Carolina, which is in the, the low country, which is that's kind of more from that, that area down there. I forgot to tell you. So I, maybe two weeks ago at work and I met somebody who was coming in just like a customer. And we were talking, They in their application, they wrote that they were from Ohio, mm-hmm. Steubenville. No way! No, I couldn't say it. I couldn't say anything. I'm like, oh, yeah. Steubenville. Stupidville. I know, I wanted to say it. But you know what? I can't even tell... I can't even tell people from Ohio to go listen to that episode because they'd probably be pissed off at us. Because... <laughs> 
We were throwing out the stupid bill. We were. <laughs> me. We were throwing it around. Okay. So now the state is famous for its southern cuisine. Mm-hmm. Barbecue is a predominant feature mm-hmm. with different regions offering varieties of styles and unique sauces. Mm-hmm. Seafood, particularly shrimp and fish, are also a staple due to the coastal locations. Mm-hmm. Grits, collard grains, cornbread are an integral part of the culinary culture. Shrimp and grits. Shrimp and grits. So That's good. good. Yeah, that is good. That is good. Cities like Charleston and Columbia attract tourists with their historical significance, vibrant art scenes, and Mm -hmm. cultural events. Myrtle Beach is a popular destination for its entertainment, golf courses, and beachfront attractions. Hilton Head Island offers upscale resorts and outdoor recreation, while Blue Ridge Mountains provide hiking and scenic drives. I mean, basically, you guys got it all. Yeah, it's it's quite a conglomerate of a variety of different things that you can get to within a couple hours drive. Yes. South Carolina is home to several respected educational institutions, including public universities like uh, University of South Carolina and Clemson University. Mm-hmm. These institutions contribute to research, education, and cultural developments in the U.S. of A. They do. Now, don't forget <laughs> Southern hospitality. Oh, sweetheart. Uh-huh. The state is known for its warm and friendly hospitality, embodying the Southern traditions of welcoming visitors with open arms. Overall, South Carolina's blend of history, culture, natural beauty, Southern charm makes it a unique and captivating destination with something to offer for any type of person, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, here are some fun facts of South Carolina that mm-hmm. you may not know. Did you know that South Carolina has its own dance? Yes, I did. You did? Do you know how to do yes, it? Yes, I did. The shag. Yes. Shag dancing. Yes. I, so for a while, I used to go shag dancing every Tuesday night at one of the local bars. And it's like, it was an older, and this is when I was still single. And I had a, some friends that invited me. They're like, yeah, just, you know, come. We'll mm-hmm. have some beard wings or whatever. And it was probably one of some of the most fun I have ever had. Now, you have to do it with a partner, right? You can't do it you by do. yourself. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's with a partner. It was so much fun. I haven't done that kind of shagging in a while. <laughs> <laughs> So did you know this dance originated on the beaches of Myrtle Beach in 1940? Mm-hmm. So the country band Alabama actually uh-huh. wrote a song about shagging, dancing on the boulevard, which is in reference to Myrtle Beach's boulevard, like their kind of their strip. Is it like a well-known song? Would I know it? Maybe. It's an older song. I want to say it's from the 80s or 90s, maybe. Okay. All right. Shagging, dancing on the boulevard. So now, peaches and palmetto trees. Yes. South Carolina is known as the Palmetto State due to mm-hmm. the presence of the sable palmetto. Mm-hmm. We have them out here too. They, they're they fucking they're everywhere. Yeah. They're so invasive. Yeah. Oh my God. But they do have like, they do house like wildlife, which is nice, like yeah. turtles and stuff like that. It's a type of palm tree that grows throughout the state. The peach is also known as a significant symbol mm-hmm. to South Carolina. It is because it's the top producing peach state. Yes. The peach producing state is South Carolina. And you, so Georgia is actually considered the peach state, but uh-huh. South Carolina produces more peaches than Georgia does. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that it South Carolina was where the first tea plantation existed? I don't think I did know that. Nope. Oh, actually, not only the first, but the only tea plantation in the United States can be found in South Carolina. Oh, oh, 
Okay. That crazy? Yeah. The Charleston Tea Garden produces American classic tea, utilizing tea plants where they were originally imported from China, but now they grow in Grow it South organically, Carolina. yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. The, oh, here's another fun fact. Did you know that the College of Charleston, founded in 1770, was the first public college? Yes. I did know oh, that. you did? Yes. Okay. And there's a – so it's right down there by the Citadel – and our son went to the Citadel for a few years. And it was so – because mostly men go to the Citadel and mostly women go to the College of Charleston. And it's like this college thing where they hook up. They have like these dances. That's how my parents met. Like they had like a boys' girls – a boy school, a girl school, and then they had like a like a formal it's, dance. It's and- very informal and <laughs> it's just kind of one of those things. Oh, you're going to College of Charleston? You're going to find yourself a Citadel man. <laughs> <laughs> South Carolina is the birthplace of sweet tea, Mm. a beloved Southern beverage said to have originated, obviously, in South Carolina. But Mm -hmm. do you like sweet tea? I I can't drink it. Yes. I do like sweet tea, but typically I drink half sweet, half unsweet. What is that called? Arnold Palmer? No, No, Arnold Palmer is tea and lemonade. Oh, got it. Okay. I just, I go half and half. What's the difference though? Like you're sweetening, you're, you're, what do you sweeten it with? Sugar? Yes. Okay. And tea bags. Yeah. And then just unsweet tea. Basically it just, it simmers down the sugar for okay. me because <laughs> they're sweet. It's so sweet. I mean, and I do like it. It's just like, you know, I, my diabetes is sitting in the more I drink just it's so <laughs> sugary. And the, but that's the good stuff. The good stuff is like using like yeah. this much sugar on the bottom of a freaking jar. <laughs> god, oh my god. All right. Well, here's another one that you may not know. The fortune cookie. Did you know oh. that although it is associated with Chinese cuisine, the fortune cookie, we are, we think it was invented in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. However, a Japanese immigrant bakery in South Carolina claims to have been making the first fortune cookies in the United States in the 1900s. So I believe him. Sure. Yeah. I, totally I can see that. Him. I can yeah. see that. And of course, I have to mention because I come from Florida where all the spring breakers end up landing, but girl, you got Myrtle Beach and Myrtle Beach is probably one of the most popular destinations for spring break, I'm thinking. It is, but in the, I don't know, 15, almost 20 years that I've lived here, mm. it's gotten like less and less of a destination. I mean, people still really? go there. There's still a lot of things to do. They're actually trying to revamp it to kind of bring its popularity back. Mm-hmm. But we used to go to Myrtle Beach all the time, like for like long weekends or whatever. We used to just get up and go and there's a bunch, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that you can do there, but it's just, it's gotten really, uh, the crime rate's gotten up and it's kind of lost its attraction, its appeal, but they're trying to kind of revamp it and and bring it back. I went there for spring break when I was... 19. Mm-hmm. And it was fun. I thought it was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so there you go. Some fun facts about South Carolina. So bless your heart, bitches. Oh, bless your heart. Bless your heart. I hope that sets you up for your story because I have yeah. no idea what your story is about. Have you not heard of our subject person before? I have not. Really? Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm sure once you get into the crime, then I'll be like, oh, that guy. But Probably. Yeah. From name well, alone, I'm not familiar. Okay. 
Well, today's crime chat is actually a chat of request. Oh. So my friend and former co-worker, Vince, shout out to Hi, Vince. Vince. He requested this a few months back. And so we are going to talk about Larry Jean Bell. And of course, it's going to be like first name, middle name, last name, like we do in the South here. Uh-huh. You know, Bobby Joe Pritchard <laughs> or <laughs> whatever. But Larry Jean Bell, he was convicted of kidnapping and murdering two young girls in Columbia, South Carolina in the mid-1980s. He was mostly known for making one of his victims write a last will and testament before murdering her and then taunting her family over the phone, making them think that she was still alive. Does it sound familiar? That's evil. Oh my God. Yes and no, but that's, you just like completely turned my stomach. Okay. Yeah. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. (laughs) Born in Ralph, Ralph, Alabama (laughs) on October 30th, 1949, Larry Jean Bell had three sisters and one brother. There wasn't a whole lot I could find on his upbringing. It's been covered by a lot of documentaries, podcasters. There's Mm. movies that have been made about. Now kind of get into some of the things that have kind of developed from this story. But what I did find is his family moved around a lot. They ended up in Columbia, South Carolina, where he attended two years at Euclid High School. He played baseball, but apparently didn't have many friends, and his parents often referred to him as a loner. The family moved again to Mississippi, where Bell graduated high school in 1967. He then trained as an electrician, but would return to Columbia area where he married and had one son. In 1970, Bell joined the U.S. Marine Corps, but was discharged within a year after he quote-unquote accidentally shot himself in the knee while cleaning his firearm. We've talked about that before. How do you shoot? I mean, would you clean a loaded firearm? No, you would not. You have to to completely fucking disassemble it. So after that, he became a correctional officer at the Department of Corrections for about a month, and then he and his family moved to Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is about an hour north of Columbia, and the couple did later divorce in 1976. I also couldn't really find a whole lot on his ex-wife, so. Mm, okay. Rock Hill is in the northern part of central South Carolina. Like, if you're thinking, if you have the state, Rock Hill is, like, one of the last cities that you're in before getting into North Carolina in the central, in the middle of the state. Okay. So, right about 30 minutes north of Rock Hill is Charlotte, North Carolina. So, he lived in Charlotte, and it's not clear whether he started before or after his failed marriage, but by the time he reached the age of 26, he began his history of assault and battery of a high aggravated nature, according to the state newspaper, which is the state of South Carolina's newspaper called The State. (laughs) In one instance, he used a knife during a failed attempt to abduct a 19-year-old Dale Sauls Howell, those three names again, behind a super duper after telling her, quote, let's go to Charlotte and party, end quote. Another time he flashed a gun in an attempt to grab a female University of South Carolina student, and he committed a third smaller crime but served time for only one of the three attacks. He spent three years in the Central Correctional Institute, and Judge Owens T. Cobb urged him to get psychiatric help. Mm. He did not follow through on all the counseling recommendations over the years, but he did spend some time at the VA hospital where psychiatrists concluded he had schizoid personality disorder, a condition marked by limited social interaction and minimal emotional engagement. I think it was the VA hospital in Columbia, and that's also where I go, so that's cool. (laughs) 
Bell eventually would relocate back to Columbia in 1985, where he made a huge mark on this small town by killing at least two young girls. Okay. 17-year-old Sharon Faye Smith, known as Sherry, was known for her kind and vibrant personality. She was voted wittiest by her high school senior class and had a collection of stuffed koala bears. She was second of three children, but Sherry was extra close to her older sister, Dawn. They enjoyed riding horses, being involved in their church youth group, and singing in the church choir. Sherry was only two days from her high school graduation at Lexington High School, where she was going to be singing the national anthem. She was going to then, after graduation, go on a cruise. On May 31st, 1985, Sherry was returning home after a graduation pool party. She was at the end of her driveway collecting the mail when she was abducted at gunpoint. Sherry's father saw her pull in near the mailbox and assumed that she would be home momentarily. Now, he he had a home office. He saw Sherry kind of pull up. They had a very long driveway. It was about 700 feet from the mailbox to the home. So it was this, like, huge, long, like, dirt road driveway. Uh And so he saw her after a few minutes. No Sherry. So he ran to the mailbox and found her car with the door open and the engine on, her purse in the front seat. He immediately contacted Lexington Sheriff's Department to report her kidnapping. The Smiths were considered an affluent family in this area, and police assumed that the kidnapper probably wanted money. So they advised Sherry's family to wait for a ransom call. Two days later, Sherry's parents, Bob and Hilda Smith, received a phone call from her abductor. The voice was identified as a male, but it was distorted, like using one of those voice changer things. Uh He asked to speak with Hilda, the mom, and told her that Sherry was in his possession. To verify that what he was saying was actually true, he described Sherry's black and yellow bathing suit that she had on and that she was wearing under her clothes on the day that she disappeared. While not able to find the caller right away, police were eventually able to trace a call to a payphone about 20 miles away. They also began recording the calls, thinking that he would probably call back again, and he did. The suspect continued to call and taunt the family regularly. When Hilda asked to speak to Sherry, he told her that Sherry was fine. He said that he would release Sherry, but for now they were eating and watching television. Now, Sherry had something called diabetes insipidus, which required her to drink a lot of water and take her medication. Her medication was in her purse, which was in the car at the end of the driveway. Uh. The kidnapper assured Hilda that Sherry was drinking plenty of water and suggested that the family have an ambulance at the house when Sherry got home. In one of these phone calls, the abductor informed Sherry's parents to expect a letter in the mail the following day. It would provide information that they were looking for about their missing daughter. Investigators immediately then went to the Lexington Post Office and began sorting through the mail. Lo and behold, they found a two-page letter. Having accompanied police to the post office, Sherry's father, Bob, he was the first one to read the letter, and he was absolutely devastated. Any hopes that his daughter would return home safe were crushed. The letter was then sent to the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division SLED, we've talked about them a couple times, to their crime lab where document examiners would search for clues, fingerprints, fibers, or anything else that would help them find this killer. The letter was written on a yellow legal pad and it was confirmed to be in Sherry's handwriting. On the top, she wrote, Last Will and Testament. The letter was dated June 1st, 1985 and time stamped at 3.58 a.m. Next to this were the words, I love y'all. Now, I'm going to quote part of the letter, and this is only a snippet. We're going to have the full letter is available actually on Patreon, and it's just eerie. It's just eerie. So part of the letter said the following, quote, I love you, Mommy, Daddy, Robert, Don, and Richard, and everyone else and all other friends and relatives. 
I'll be with my father now, so please, please don't worry. Just remember my witty personality and great special times we all shared together. Please don't even let this ruin your lives. Just keep living one day at a time for Jesus. Some good will come of this. My thoughts will always be with you and in you. End quote. And again, it's just part of the letter. Undoubtedly, Sherry was trying to like comfort her family, you know, with everything that was going on. And most notably, in the middle of the first page, Sherry wrote in part of her paragraph, casket closed, knowing that her fate was coming and what was going to be ahead. Oh, my God. Oh. I know. I'm getting chills, too. (laughs) So five days after the family received this letter, the abductor called again. This time, he spoke with Dawn, Sherry's sister, and he informed her in his distorted voice that on June 1st, 1985, at 4.58 in the morning, quote, Sherry is now part of me, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Our souls are now one, end quote. When the abductor was asked what he meant by that, he said not to ask any questions. Hilda could be heard in the background begging the kidnapper not to kill her daughter, but instead he said, Sherry loves and misses y'all and get a good night's rest. And then hung up. At this point, they had no idea who took their daughter, but it was evident he enjoyed taunting them. This demonstrated some sort of power, which he likely did not even have in his own life. On the following day, the kidnapper called again. This time, he provided directions to an abandoned building where Sherry's body was going to be located in the backyard. He ended the call saying, quote, we're waiting. God chose us, end quote. Detectives followed the directions and confirmed the Smith's worst nightmare. Sherry's body was found and found exactly where he said it would be. The autopsy showed Sherry had been dead for several days, and investigators believed that she, in fact, was murdered on June 1st, 1985 at 4.58 in the morning when he called and said, we are now one. This was also an hour after she dated and time-stamped her last will and testament, and this, that was only 12 hours after her abduction. So it was very, very fast, and he was just kind of stringing this family along, even though Sherry had already died. Due to duct tape residue that was found on her face, investigators believe that Sherry died of suffocation. The suspect likely knew what he was doing because he took the duct tape with him in case he left any fingerprints or any other, like, trace evidence that might have been found on it. But there was the residue that was still left on her face, so they knew that he used duct tape. Also, pieces of Sherry's hair had been cut off. Likely because the tape was actually stuck to it. Like it was kind of stuck and he just cut it off as he was trying to take the tape off. Right. Due to the extended period of the time that Sherry's body spent in outside, like in the elements, no forensic evidence was actually recovered and they could not definitively prove whether or not Sherry had been sexually assaulted. To continue taunting the Smith family, the killer called the home on the night of Sherry's funeral to confess how he raped and murdered Sherry. He enjoyed speaking with Dawn. Sherry's sister on the phone. And when she answered, he said he was planning to turn himself in, but also he did contemplate suicide. He then asked her for her forgiveness. Sometimes he would mix up Dawn and Sherry. Like when he was talking about Sherry, he would say Dawn. And he said, quote, all he wanted to do is make love to Dawn, end quote. And then when Dawn was like, "What what are you talking about? He corrected himself and he said, I meant to say Sherry. He... He explained to Don that he let Sherry make her own decision regarding how she died and that it's as if it like somehow justified his actions. He gave her the choice of dying by shooting, by drug overdose, or by suffocation, and she chose the last option, and that's what he told Don. He wrapped duct tape around her head, and she died right there in front of him. He said, quote, God was ready to accept her as an angel, end quote. Do you believe that, though? Do you think, I mean, out of those three... 
Shooting, overdose, and suffocation. Suffocation would probably be the most violent for yeah. you to your body to go through. Like if somebody, was I would say I would do an over. Like if you were forced, I would do overdose because you probably go out. Maybe she didn't yeah. want drugs in her system. I don't know. I don't know. I, wow. I I I think it's possible. I think I don't see why he would make that up. Mm. Well, I don't I don't, know. Uh, However, our favorite FBI profiler, John Douglas, <gasps> was uh, consulted on this case. <laughs> yeah. Douglas and partner Ron Walker categorized the unsub, quote-unquote unsub, as an organized killer. He predicted the murderer would be young, overweight white man in his late 20s, early 30s, either unmarried or divorced, with an above-average intellect. Since the criminal's voice sounded altered in the recording, it was likely that he had knowledge of electrical systems. He suspected the man in question had previously committed sexually motivated crimes or made threats of a sexual nature. He was not impulsive or one to take chances. From listening to the recordings of the phone calls, the FBI agents and detectives working the case were convinced that he was actually reading from a script that he had written. All this is in the the psychological profile, which is crazy. But the giveaway was that he sometimes stumbled his words and go back to the beginning of the sentence to start over again, making sure he said it the way that he wrote it. Now, detectives, they needed the suspect to, to call again. They needed to get... Somehow, they needed to make contact with the suspect. So, John Douglas and Ron Walker came up with a plan. Whoever killed Sherry loved attention, and no doubt, they believed that he was smarter than the detectives on the case. The agents thought that they may be able to lure him out of hiding if they do a memorial service for Sherry. So, Don, playing a central role with this, given that the killer was obviously fond of her, knowing that the suspect would probably pay close attention to the media, and basically consuming everything that the media had put out. It's because this was a high coverage area. Like I said, it was an affluent family in the area. Basically kind of patting himself on the back with all the media attention going, I got away with it. I got away with it. So if the local media made a big enough story about the memorial service, there might be a good chance that he would actually attend. You know, kind of sit back and watch. Yeah. Yeah. I can see yeah. that. Definitely. The memorial service went off well. Local media covered it. And it was like very well covered. And so it kind of went off like they had hoped. Members of the community far and wide came to support the Smith family. Dawn brought one of Sherry's koala bears, laid it by her grave with a bouquet of flowers. And if the killer was there, he would likely see the bear, maybe come back later and take it as a souvenir. So as the police hid waiting, no one came. No one took the koala bear. Don't! It was a a good idea, though. No, it was. It was a great idea. Yeah. But the murderer was likely inspired, in a way, by the memorial service, although he didn't go himself, because a few weeks later, on June 23rd, he called the Smith home yet again, and Dawn answered. As he had done a number of times before, he brought God into the conversation, and he seemed to find playing God to be particularly satisfying. Perhaps citing God in his phone calls made him less guilty? Uh-huh. And likely knew that, well, he he knew that the Smiths were Christians and maybe derived pleasure from bringing God into the conversation and to taunting the family. A further indication that he was beginning to feel untouchable was the fact that he no longer distorted his voice for the phone calls. The first thing he said to Don was also particularly alarming. He said, quote, God wants you to join Sherry Fay." end quote. <gasps> what? And then he said, quote, only a matter of time. And she could not be protected forever, end quote. Basically threatening to do the same thing to Dawn. Right. This poor family. This poor family. And that sister, I mean, if I was the parents, I, I would, oh my God. I don't, I don't know. I would yeah. move. <laughs> 
But then he told Don what he actually really called about, not to basically threaten to take her. Mm. But he wanted to talk about the body of another victim, <gasps> nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick. Oh. Now, there was no known connection between Deborah and the Smith family, but Don did remember that there was a young girl who was recently abducted in the next county. Deborah was abducted outside of her family's home as she played with her siblings in the front yard, and their father was inside. A neighbor went running when she heard Deborah screaming for help, but by the time they had got there, there was no sign of Deborah. Now, the murderer told Don, quote, listen carefully, and then he gave a series of directions as he had two weeks ago on the phone where to find Sherry's body. He did the same thing on the phone, giving directions to where Deborah May was at. He ended the call by saying, quote, Deborah May is waiting. God forgive us all, end quote. Again, the detectives followed directions he gave to Dawn and had a good idea of what they'd find once they got there. And sure enough, just off a dirt road amongst thick brushes lay the body of Deborah May Helmick, nine years old. Just nine. In the meantime, forensic scientists were scrutinizing the letter that was sent to the Smith home. They used an electrostatic detection device to identify indentations left on the paper from the previous writing. So you have a legal pad, right? Mm -hmm. And you write hard enough, it goes down to the various different layers. So they were able to pick up some previous writing from the papers that were above it. So they found an indentation of incomplete phone numbers and addresses. It kind of was like a contact list is kind of what it resembled. The one that they found, there was only one digit missing. So they had only a few possibilities to complete the number. Basically, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was only one digit missing. So they started dialing and they just started trying the number. It was a number from Alabama and they called it and a young man answered. When the officers asked if he had any connections to South Carolina, he said yes. His parents lived there. This led the police to the home of Ellis and Sharon Shepard, who lived about 15 miles away from the Smith home. Police were able to confirm that Ellis and Sharon Shepard were actually away on vacation at the time of Sherry's murder. They were able to also confirm that some of the killer's phone calls to the Smith home came from the Shepard's home phone, and they were using they were able to do that by verifying phone records. When they played one of the recorded calls from the Smith phone calls to the Shepard's, they immediately recognized the voice of Larry Jean Bell. They confirmed that Bell did electrical work for Ellis and that he was actually house-sitting while they were on vacation. They left a list of phone numbers of people that Bell could call while they were away and if they needed anything, and this included their son, who lived in Alabama. (laughs) The FBI then found out that Bell also had a history of deviant sexual behavior, including making obscene phone calls and the attempted kidnapping of a young woman. Ellis Shepard said that Bell picked them up from the airport when they got home from their vacation and that Bell seemed very nervous and on edge and the only thing that he wanted to talk about was the missing Sherry Smith girl. Oh, wow. Larry Jean Bell was then arrested June 27th, 1985. After the police searched the Shepherd's home, they found six long blonde hairs microscopically that were very similar to Sherry's. Bell did deny having anything to do with the murders of Sherry or Deborah, and instead he said that was the quote-unquote bad Larry Jean Bell, who was the guilty one, not the good Larry Jean Bell. That was him. So he was admitting. It was the bad guy, though. But it was the bad one. It was the bad one. Also, a roll of 22-cent U.S. Postal Service commemorative mallard duck stamps in the shepherd's, like, desk drawer matched Uh. the stamps from the last will and testament envelope. Oh, 
my god. Remember when stamps were 22 cents? They're like 60 cents now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. In February 1986, the trial began. Bell's mother testified that, quote, Larry was just, well, our Larry. We accepted him the way any family would accept a child. They say all children are different, end quote. Bell acknowledged that the voice on the taped calls was him during the trial. And a Columbia Record reporter said, quote, at different points while the tapes were being played, Bell shook with laughter, cried silently, watched the courtroom clock, and cracked his knuckles, end quote, while they were playing the recordings. Bell also made numerous outbursts and comments during his six-hour testimony and throughout the entire trial. He said things like, quote, Mona Lisa is a man, end quote, and, quote, silence is golden, my friend, end quote. Likely he was trying to manipulate the jury to think that he was insane, uh-huh. but it didn't work. A psychiatrist testified that she believed Larry's antics were all an act. He wasn't crazy at all. He just had a sadistic sociopath looking to escape severe punishment. Uh-huh. The jury deliberated for 47 minutes. Less than an hour. <laughs> he was found guilty of kidnapping and first-degree murder of Sherry Smith. He was also found guilty of murder and kidnapping of Deborah Helmick in a separate trial in 1987, and he was sentenced to death. Bless your heart, bitch. Bless your heart. Bye. Bye, bitch. Bye, bitch. Bell was also later suspected in two other disappearances, 21-year-old Denise Newsom-Porch in 1975 and 26-year-old Sandy Elaine Cornette in 1984 in Charlotte. So Denise Porch, she had been married only a year. She managed an apartment complex where she also lived. So she lived in the apartment complex and was also the manager of it. On July 31st, 1975, Denise left a note for her husband saying that she was leaving their home to show an apartment to a potential tenant. She was seen by witnesses walking on the property with an unidentified man, but Denise was never seen again. There was no indication that she ran away. Her purse was found in the home. Keys to vacant apartments were found in the home, and the home did not indicate a struggle. The television was on. The air conditioner was on, that kind of thing. Her car was also found outside of her home. She had a Camaro. Denise was happy and gave no signs or clues to family members that she was discontented with her marriage or would leave on her own. After seven years, her family did declare her legally dead. After Bell's arrest, he did become a suspect in the investigation. In 1975, Bell actually only lived 300 yards away from the apartment complex. He did deny any involvement in Denise's disappearance, and they were never able to prove anything. Now, Sandy Cornette, she was last seen arriving home after having dinner with her fiancé around 6.30 p.m. on November 18, 1984. Her fiancé, they didn't live together. Her fiancé lived in another town. Uh-huh. But he did try to call her on the phone, on, like on his way home. He would stop at a payphone because they didn't uh-huh. have cell phones then. Stop at a payphone, call and say, hey, did you make it home okay, honey? You know. Well, she never answered. There was no response. He lived in Greenville, which is, I don't know, it's like maybe... Oh, it says, I just, I wrote it in here. Just under a two hour away from Charlotte, a two hour drive away from Charlotte. (laughs) The next day, Sandy did not show up for work and then her neighbor reported her missing. As with Denise, there were no signs of a struggle in the home. She also left her purse that had a checkbook, house keys, driver's license inside. Her purse was found on the bed and the television in the bedroom was left on. There were three items identified that were missing, an ATM card, a dictaphone, which is a small cassette recorder. Mm-hmm. I had to look that up. I didn't I had, remember what I a dictaphone was. You Did have, you? Well, I had what, during my, like, when I was um, recording college courses and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have one, yeah. I mean, I just I was always thought it was a small, like, a little mini cassette recorder with the mini tapes. 
Is that yeah. what it? Yeah. It's a call. Okay. Yeah. It's a dictaphone. There we go. I used to, so I did one year of college. I was able to do double the amount of credits because I took my dictaphone. I put it in one class and I would go to another. No way. <laughs> yeah. The, the dean was like, yeah, if you can pass the exam at the end, that's fine. We're, you know, they just were happy to take my money. I'm like, yeah, yeah I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> you can pay us. That's fine. So a missing ATM card, a dictaphone, and a dark blue jogging suit, which likely that's what she had on at the time. And she was not the type people would describe her that would open a door for a stranger. So investigators thought maybe it was somebody that she knew. Uh-huh. Sandy's ATM card was located being used by an unidentified woman that was not Sandy and an unidentified man. Investigators believe that Larry Jean Bell was responsible for her disappearance. Bell actually knew Sandy's previous boyfriend. The men worked together at the Charlotte Douglas International Airport. Bell also said that he attended a party at her house. However, neighbors never really remembered seeing him there. Either way, he did deny abducting, killing her. Bell made statements that were indicative that he knew where her body was buried. Oh. Mm. But because Bell was never convicted of both Denise and Sandy, or charged even, there was not enough evidence to even bring forth charges, both other cases are still open at this time as missing person cases. Now, Larry Jean Bell is the subject of John Douglas's 2021 book called... When a Killer Calls, a haunting story of murder, criminal profiling, justice in a small town. I did not know that. <laughs> Wait, I wonder if he's the guy that influenced that movie, When a Killer Calls. Probably. It checked the children. Remember that movie? Yeah. Did you check the children? Oh, oh God. Yeah. Give me chills. Okay. <laughs> well, John Douglas did an interview after, he, after this, I think it was like February of 2022, talking about his book mm-hmm. and had this to say about his encounter with Larry Jean Bell. Quote, I remembered I asked him when he started feeling bad about this case. He then said to me, all I know is that the good Larry Jean Bell couldn't have done this, but the bad Larry Jean Bell could have. Now for him, it was all about being in control. We were dealing with a sadist, and not all serial killers are sadists. He wasn't just satisfied killing a victim, he wanted to be in full control. It frustrated him when he wasn't. Committing horrific crime wasn't enough for him. He wanted to manipulate the families of his victims, and I've never had a case like this before where the offender doesn't make it clear what he wants. Douglas then continued to explain, does he want ransom? Is it sexually motivated? He doesn't just want to commit this crime, but he also wants to toy with the victim's families, give them false hope that their child is still alive, and the truth is, Sherry was probably killed about 12 hours after her abduction. She knew she was going to die. He made her write this testament as a way to also taunt her, but that letter also helped us with our timeline when investigating this case, end quote. Now, Larry Jean Bell, he was given a choice. He gave Sherry a choice. He was given a choice. You can die by the electric chair or you can die by lethal injection. Mm. He chose the electric chair. Okay. Bell made numerous attempts to appeal his convictions, all which were upheld. His Mm. lawyers claimed that he was schizophrenic, thought that he was Jesus Christ, and was too mentally ill to face capital punishment. His behavior in prison included defiling himself with feces and drinking his own urine. Larry Jean Bell was electrocuted October 4th, 1996 at the age of 46. He had no final words and Bell was the last death row inmate in South Carolina executed by electrocution until James Neal Tucker, who was executed in 2004 for the double murders of Rosalie Dolly Oakley and Shannon Lynn Mellon. I'm telling you these names, <laughs> but that those that's something I want to look into. That seems really interesting. You know, they should have gave him a third choice. They should have gave him an electric chair, lethal injection, and duct tape. 
Dark duct tape. Suffocation by duct tape. Yes. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier there's been a lot of, like, you know, documentaries and that kind of thing. So in addition to Douglas's book, mm. other things that have come out highlighted are, one, forensic photographer Rita Y. Schuler, who worked on the murder case, she wrote Murder in the Midlands, Larry Jean Bell and the 28 Days of Terror that Shook South Carolina. Wow. This came out in 2007. The next one is Sherry's mother, Hilda. She wrote a book called The Rose of Sherry, which was published in 2001, and Hilda died actually in 2003 Aww. at the age of 61. That poor family. Sherry's sister, Dawn, is now a Christian singer and songwriter mm-hmm. and motivational speaker. She wrote a book called Grace So Amazing, A True Story of God's Grace in the Midst of Life-Shattering Tragedy. And this is a tribute to Sherry and a testament to the pivotal role her faith played in guiding her after Sherry's murder. The murder also inspired a 1991 CBS movie called Nightmare in Columbia County. Columbia is not a county in Columbia, South Carolina. Just saying. <laughs> but this tells the story of Dawn from Dawn's perspective. And it's actually now on Netflix called Victim of Beauty, the Dawn Smith story. It actually, they changed the name and it's on, it's on Netflix now, but it, I haven't watched it, but it's a, I want to watch oh, it. I'm going to do that tonight. I'm going to watch it. There that. you go. Okay. Investigation Discovery Eyewitness has an episode called The Smith Sisters, and this aired in 2017. A 42-minute docudrama reflects the story from Don Smith's perspective. Investigation Discovery's Murder Calls has an episode called The Devil's Voice that aired in May of 2018. Forensic Files has an episode called Last Will. That episode aired in 2003, and that's the one that I've seen the most. This is the very first time I heard of this story was on Forensic Files years and years and years ago. Investigation Discoveries on the case with Paula Zahn had an episode called One Month of Terror, and this aired in 2013. Court TV show The FBI Files had an episode called Cat and Mouse that aired in 1999. And true crime podcast Crime Junkies aired an episode about the murders in August of 2022. So not that long ago, last year, about a year ago. There's been other podcasts that have also done it that I saw just, you know, while I was doing some additional research and everything. But there's so much more. And it's not, it's weird because it's like a, a lot of people have covered it, but it's not well known at yeah. the same time. You I know didn't know I mean? it. I didn't know it. The more, I mean, it sounded vaguely familiar, but like I didn't know. I wasn't familiar with that case. I'm glad you did it because I did not know. Yeah. Well, it's fucking. It's sadistic. That's the only thing that I can I can think of. Sadistic sociopath taunting the family of somebody that you just murdered and giving them the hopes that she's still alive is a new level yeah. of sadism. Yeah. And how far does he live from you? How far was this from you? <laughs> well, he's in hell right now. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is, it's, it's about an hour away. Not far. It's a crime chat link. <laughs> crime chat fun fact. You know what? We need to do an episode, a joint episode of John Douglas. Yeah. Let's do the maybe we'll I'll do young John Douglas, you do his <laughs> later years. I'll do old John Douglas. <laughs> well, you know, when he was like after the book. We'll do pre book, yeah. after book. <laughs> well, which book? Oh, his first book. Mind Hunter. Mind Hunter. Pre Mind Hunter, post Mind Hunter. Yes. <laughs> I don't think we can afford uh if he were to be a guest on the show. So maybe he'll just enjoy the fact that we're doing a story on him and he'll just say hey ladies you never know we need to hashtag john douglas call yes, us yes <laughs> he's a good guy you could tell he's a good guy yeah yeah absolutely oh. so this is the horrible horrible story of larry jean bell bless the smith family and yes. everything that they've done i mean it's just it's just shitty 
Like, it is shitty. Th- that there's people like that. Like, I don't know what else to say. It's just shitty. Yeah. Well, rest in peace. Yes. Sherry and Deborah and... And the other two. Those other two girls. Oh, my God. Sandy and Denise. They know who took them. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't he admit it? Because it's a control thing. Because he it's knows what they thing. wanted. Yeah. And he wouldn't give it to yeah. them. But they, we all know he did it. Yeah. Oh, my God. I freaking hate freaking serial killers. Oh. Don't we all? Yeah. Oh. All right. Well, thank you for doing that. Thank you, Vince, for recommending Yes, this thank story. you, Vince. All right. Well, because we're going to leave you hanging chatters for more information on this case, please check out After That Crime Chat, only available on Patreon. And don't forget to follow us, Crime Chat with Nat Cat, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok. I need to make that a song. <laughs> See what we got going on. Remember, Crime Chat with Nat and Cat. When you become a chatter on our Patreon, you'll have access to bonus episodes, behind the scenes, bloopers. Also, you'll be part of a giveaway that we're having, and we're having a special guest kind of collaborate with us, I think, mm-hmm. a little bit. Like, just help yeah. us out with that. Coming up We're working soon. on it. We're working, we're working on, on it. it. We're working yeah. on it. Yes. And be sure to check out our next episode. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You don't want to miss it. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> we'll see you on the next Crime Chat. Bye. Bye.